Today's episode is brought to you by Death Wish, Inc. For over 20 years, Death Wish has been the go-to label for emerging punk and hardcore. That continues today with recent releases from scene staples and promising newcomers such as Modern Life is War, Greet Death, Chastity, Converge, Frail Body, and more. Get 10% off all Death Wish music and merch in their store right now using the link deathwishinc.com slash the first ever which automatically applies the discount and filters the site for all items included. Again, that is 10% off all Deathwish releases and merch at deathwishinc.com slash the first ever. If you ever wanted to hear me sing in a band with mosh parts, go check out my other band, Hesitation Wounds. The record is called Chicanery, and it's available right now. Today's episode is brought to you by Anchorfish Printing. Hey, are you in a band? Do you run a label? Or maybe you just want to make some merch for fun. You should hit up Anchorfish Printing. They've been taking care of bands for over 15 years. I first met the owner, Michael, when my band Touche Amore started, and he was our go-to guy. You can visit what they have to offer over at anchorfishprinting.com. You can hit them up for all your merch needs, whether it's screen printing, embroidery, or maybe you just need some stickers. Mention the first ever podcast and get 10% off your order. Welcome to the first ever podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Bohm. If this is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. This is episode 104, and my guest this week is an incredible poet whose name is Matthew Dickman. He has a brand new book out called Husbandry, which is absolutely incredible. I met Matthew uh, at this point probably like seven or eight years ago. Um, he is a good friend of Jeff Rickley from Thursday, and uh, he introduced us in Portland, Oregon, and Jeff gave me a copy of one of his early books, and I just absolutely fell in love. Um, Matthew has been a huge inspiration to me um, between writing poetry and also lyrics. Um, I've kept up with buying all his books as they come out, and um, I'm just such a huge fan. And Matthew is uh, the first official poet that I've had on the show, so... That's exciting. Only took me 104 episodes to do, but uh, definitely check out his new book, Husbandry. And I got to say, this is truly one of my favorite episodes that um, I've had here on the podcast. It's uh, It gets pretty heavy. So just a fair warning, we do talk about grief quite a lot. And um, it, it's it was just so nice to hear his side of things from his perspective. Uh, I, I really, I, I really, really appreciated it. So um also, I want to throw out that if you're potentially new here, there's a bonus episode available right now. If you go over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon, where Matthew answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. Uh, that's something that happens pretty often here. Almost every single episode has these bonus episodes. And if that interests you going you know, going forward with you wanting to potentially submit questions to upcoming guests, find out who's coming on, all sorts of stuff, 
go to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. It helps support the show. And, um, you know, it just makes me feel good. It just makes me feel good, you know? Okay. Uh, without further ado, here is my conversation with Matthew Dickman. Good to see you, Matthew. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. It's good to see you, Jeremy. Yeah, I'm really good. I'm excited to be here. Uh, I'm, this, you're someone I've been really looking forward to having, and you're actually the official first poet that I've had on the show. And I can't believe it took me to like 100 episodes to do this. I think it might be <laughs> my own nervousness to talk to someone who does it professionally because I don't believe in myself enough as a writer to feel like I am worthy enough to talk to someone who does it like full on professionally. So um, this is exciting for me. Well, we'll have to get into that because I've read your poems and I, I don't think you have anything to be nervous about. <laughs> that, oh, that, that means a whole lot. That's very that's incredibly sweet. It's true. I've been spending all this time with December. I know you don't want to talk about yourself. I know that's not the point, but I've been spending a bunch of time with your December book of poems. That's really cool to hear. Does um? So you just mentioned. Uh, I mean, we just were chatting for just a sec before mm-hmm. we started recording. But um, you just got back from San Francisco. So are you on like press run right now? Did you did you? It looked like you did maybe a, a reading there. I did. Yeah. I don't know. You know, as like a single father of two kids who publishes poetry. I'm not sure if you'd call it a press run, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> sure. it's like, uh, my, this most recent book husbandry came out and, um, you know, I was born and raised on the West coast. And so, uh, it's my fourth book, um, in the States. And, uh, for each book I've always, you know, there's been like certain places that I really just wanted to read just for like personal reasons. So, like uh, before this trip to San Francisco, I had a reading at Powell's Books, the famous Powell's Books in Portland, Oregon, downtown, which was so lovely. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I just went to San Francisco just for two nights. And in the past, I've read at City Light. I read at City Lights like the last three times. But there's this bookstore that people in San Francisco will know, and maybe other people too, called Green Apple Books which is amazing bookstore. And uh, I got to read there, which was two nights ago, which was so cool. It was really, really great. Uh, And then at the end of this month, I'll go on to LA. Oh, where are you doing it in LA? At Craft Contemporary Museum, which is a really amazing craft museum. It's right like kitty corner to LACMA. Oh, okay. Awesome. Awesome. I'm going to, I will definitely head out to that. I'm home until October. So I will, I will come out. We'll hang out. Cool. Um, How do you do with reading uh, publicly like that? Like, was that something that you were already kind of comfortable with? Um, It's, it's something that I personally struggle with, I think, because it takes me back Mm. to anxieties of doing book reports in high school where yeah. all eyes are on you and you're just, you know, the public reading aspect, like how have you always been pretty comfortable in that? Yes, yes and no. Before I started writing poems, and I mean, long before uh, I was ever like giving readings, even at like open, even before I had any books published, like at open mics, I was like in high school, I was into theater. And so that gave like theater theater was a great experience for going into writing in a couple ways. One was, you know, you learned how to perform 
you'd, you know, be on stage even in high school, but you'd be on stage in front of like a hundred other students or whatever. And, um, and also, uh, so, okay. So that helps with like reading your work because there's this expectation that a poet or a fiction writer or any sort of writer um, goes out and reads their work. I mean, it's partly how you sell books and that sort of thing. I mean, it would be, and if you didn't, it would be sort of like a band who made music, you know, pressed albums, but never performed. Right. Uh, but there's this expectation that because you wrote a novel or you wrote some poems or something, you, you're also a person who should be able to give a, an entertaining, like, you know, re- reading, compelling reading. And that's crazy because, <laughs> you know, you know, there are a lot of people who are really shy or, you know, have certain um, like like social uh, hills to climb when they're in public that write yeah. really beautiful stuff. But anyway, like perf- performing in theater helped me feel comfortable in front of crowds, though there's a big difference between memorizing Shakespeare and and saying it in a play and reading something that like you wrote. Um, right. So I, I've been, you know, um, lucky and publishing books since 2008. I still get nervous, you know, and it still brings up things like yeah. weird childhood stuff. Like, am I worth, am I worthy? Like, am I worth while to be up here reading to these people? Uh, do you ever, yeah, do you ever have like a, how do I say this? Like, um, for instance, okay, just, just to, just to find comparisons in, in, in what we both do, like I'll write lyrics, right. For something. And it'll just be like the first version of whatever I'm writing. And then when mm-hmm. I bring it, you know, and it feels good to me. Right. Mm-hmm. But then when I bring it to the band for the first time for band practice to actually try yeah. it out, I'm looking yeah. at the words and now they feel different. They, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Oh now, that, now, yeah. that, now that they're in front of people, I'm like, oh, maybe this isn't whatever. Like, obviously at that point, your book has been published. You've gone through editors. You've done the <laughs> right, whole thing. Right. But, but when you're in front of people, has it ever felt different once you're reciting it? Like, do the words feel like they're saying something else almost? A- absolutely. I mean, there's been, there's been times when I'm reading a poem and suddenly I am sort of disconnected from this event of the reading and internally, I'm looking at this poem and suddenly, like, maybe I don't believe in it, you know, or totally. I'm just like, what, what is going on? There was a great, um, there was a great moment early on uh, when I was reading from my very first book, All American Poem. And I was invited by Reed College here in Portland to give a reading. And an old friend of mine uh, from high school and her daughter, who her daughter must have been like five or six years old at the time. They were in the audience and it was great. So I gave this reading. I felt really good about the reading. It was like going along, you know, and uh, I, I read this one poem and I get to the, and it was like, a, I think, I don't, I don't remember what poem it was, but it was a poem where at the end the crowd was like, Oh man. I mean, I think it was a poem about like a harder subject, emotional subject. And, the, the audience was like, oh, and there's like this moment of silence, Jeremy. And then all of a sudden, my friend's daughter goes, what does it even mean? 
And everybody <laughs> starts laughing. Everyone starts laughing <clears throat> and looking at me, you know. And I look at her from the stage and I was like, that's su- such a good question. Like, I don't really know, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was yeah. great. It was great. The but child- yeah, the I, childhood. I- the childhood wonder to just cut right through, Dude, just cut right the through. Wisdom, you know? just cut through all garbage, you know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I go through a lot of different things, you know, when I do reading advice that I was given. Like my first book, um, uh, the poems are personal, really only because I wrote them in a way. But um, my second book, Mykowski's Revolver. Uh, centers around the suicide and death of my older brother, also dealing with suicides of other friends. And uh, writing it was one thing, publishing it was one thing, but like I found like coming out and like reading it to audiences um, was really difficult. And I ended up thinking to myself, why the fuck did I write and publish this book? Like this is not fun to go read over and over and over again. And there were times where like my voice would crack or I would start feeling emotional, like I was going to cry. And I felt fine about that in some ways. I mean, I'm human talking about something very human, but I also felt concerned, you know, that I wasn't, that I wasn't showing up for the audience in a way that I, I should. And a mentor of mine and an amazing, amazing poet, Marie Howe, uh, I remember talking to Marie about it and Marie said, honey, you're, you're not there to, you're, you're there to take care of the audience. Like that's what you're there for. You're there to, you're there in service of them. And if you can put yourself in that place of being in service to them, not that they're children, not in that sort of patronizing way, but that you are like the pen, like the ultimate adult in the room. Like, you know, you're sharing this stuff with them. You're there to care for them. Just remember that you're there in service to them. And that actually really helped me so that almost no matter what the subject of any poem was, I would be able to read it in a straightforward way um, that didn't make the audience feel they needed to care, take care of me, you know? Right. That's interesting. Because that's something I felt a little unfair, like of like reading to an audience and getting so emotional that they felt like, oh, fuck, like that they had to take care of me. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's I mean, that's just a whole exercise in vulnerability altogether. Yeah. You know, Um, but I'm sure everybody in those rooms always felt very, you know. Like uh, they really appreciated what you were doing because that is, you know, it's it's the ultimate hard thing to share in words, let alone having someone recite it to you. Um, I can I can relate to you quite a bit. We had a record that was one thousand percent just about the passing of my mom, like very, Mm -hmm. very detailed, like Mm -hmm. almost too detailed where I had even a close friend who I played it for way before it came out be like this is going to alienate a lot of your younger audience because a younger audience Mm. isn't, hasn't gone through the loss of a parent. You know what I'm saying? Right. Right. And what I ended up finding over time was like, it ended up connecting with an older audience that never took us seriously, maybe because our band name is stupid, (laughs) but, 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 um, but, 
so that was an interesting thing. And then over time, I saw how it grew with a lot of the younger audience, because as you get older, you go through these experiences of losing people. Yeah, I, I have notes on, uh, on on each one of your books and, and actually have a, a few questions that um, from my own experiences, yeah. I wanted to actually ask you about uh, that specific yeah. book. Um, before we actually uh, get into that, let's like, you know, the whole point of the show is uh, is first experiences, obviously. Yeah. Um, okay. And yeah, uh, so um, you. So you grew up in a, in a part of Portland. It's called Lentz. Like it's a, it's like a neighborhood of Portland, yeah. right? Yeah, totally. Um, do you feel like it's kind of a like a fun badge of honor to have actually being born and raised in Portland the way we probably do feeling born and raised in Los Angeles? It's like we're kind of a rarity almost, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I well, of course, like any I mean any city. It, it I feel like that used to be more like an East Coast thing. You know, there would be like people who moved to New York city from Iowa or something. And they would be there for like three years and you'd be like, Hey, where are you from at a party? And they'd be like, Oh, I'm from New York, you know, but like where you wouldn't really meet a lot of people who are from that, like Boston or wherever. And um, growing up in Portland, I mean, everyone was from here, you know, but now, yeah, now it's like uh, when I meet another Portlander uh, it's kind of like, you know, meeting like like living uh for years without seeing your other like a, another example of your own species you know right um but also Lentz, i'm sure you I have mean, like the how have we never met before kind of thought too. yeah totally yeah absolutely but um i mean lens like uh you know when i grew up in lens in the uh you know 80s and early 90s like lens fucking sucked I mean, that, ta- that, that, um, neighborhood was one of the rougher neighborhoods in, in Portland. And I mean, at that time, you, you know, there was like, uh, like trouble, quote unquote, like trouble neighborhoods or like, you know, like North Portland had gang violence in the form of like Crips and Bloods and that sort of thing. And Lentz though it had gang violence in the form of white nationalists and neo-Nazi skinheads, though the Portland police didn't really consider them gangs for a little while, partly because of racial stuff, racial bullshit. Of course. Um, yeah. Uh, so it was like, it was, it, you know, um, you know, if someone was like, would you like trade out growing up in Lentz when you did for growing up in like a different neighborhood in Portland that didn't have that stuff? Like, I think my answer always surprises them. I think my answer is supposed to be like, no, man, I'm glad I grew up in Lentz. But I'm like, fuck that. Oh, yeah, I would trade that shit for sure. <laughs> you know, right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I would. Uh, yeah, I mean, what I, what I know about, I mean, uh, again, we'll we'll get to it when we start going through your books, but obviously, like Wonderland is like a it's it's such a, a a telling of what that childhood was like with the amount of, especially yeah, like white nationalists and stuff like that. Um, at least it, you know, I know over these last couple of years, uh, with the amount of protests that have happened and all of that, like we're seeing those people really creeping back into Portland, which is, I'm sure, a jarring almost sort of um triggering thing from your childhood like seeing how all these people still exist there where it seemed like for at least a period a lot of those people moved out of portland and into like the more woodsy areas at least of oregon totally and the you know a group that my brother and i and the rest of our like skater 
punk friends growing up had to deal with, though some of those friends did later become, you know, neo-Nazi skinheads. But the group that we, you know, came into conflict with the most was also a group that had ties to uh, the Klan in Idaho. And um, there was a, a... there was a murder of a young student, Ethiopian student, a soccer player that happened. And there was a trial. And uh, the family of the victim was represented by Southern Poverty Law. It was this huge trial in, in Portland. And one of the crazy things that happened during the trial is that all these other like neo-Nazi skinheads from Montana, from Idaho, from California, like came to Portland as well as like uh, sharps, like skinheads against racial prejudice, like anti-racist punks, like came from like Seattle and LA and all. And it was like a weird after school special war zone in Portland for, for a long time for like that whole, the whole, during the whole trial, you know, but what happened was um, Southern Poverty Law was able to link uh, East Side White Pride, the skinhead group, with the Klan, and and um, I forget, and in a civil suit, basically bankrupt them. So, so they had no money anymore. And then this other thing happened, which was at the same time, a huge. Um, Russian population moved into Lentz and opened up churches and stuff. And they were not interested at all in neo-Nazis walking around and, you know, dealing with that. And so it was like this perfect storm that kind of pushed them out of Lentz for a long time. Um, Wow. Which um, now that face, like the face that I see of that like white nationalist face is, is no longer like in, uh, you know, combat boots and a shaved head and like a big swastika tattooed on his chest. It's more like jeans, you know, hunting boots, flannels, and like these kinds of like pro-American white nationalists that come and try to break up, um, you know, gatherings of peaceful protesters. Right. Man, having so many friends that live in Portland uh, over these last couple of years and just like seeing from their point of view, not what's being necessarily like reported in, in the big obvious yeah. uh, news publications, but like seeing it through their own social media and stuff. It's been yeah. just such a whirlwind. Um, yeah, it's when, crazy um, the disparity yeah. between those two, right? Like what absolutely, is being, what's being shown, you know, even in like the Oregonian's blog or some newspaper and what people are capturing on their phone is can be pretty uneven. Yeah, 1000%. Um, so when did, so did you go from living in Portland to then um, living in Austin for school? Were those like the two, the two moves for you or were you anywhere else between there? I lived in Eugene, Oregon. So I, so once I got out of high school, I started my very highly esteemed seven year undergraduate degree which um, the, fir- the first part of those seven years, I seem to be only majoring in um, drugs and theater. Um, but I went to Portland Community College, which was fucking awesome. It's still my favorite educational experience going to Portland Community College at the Sylvania campus in Portland. And I went there for three years and then 
or no, maybe almost four years. And then I went to like Portland State for a little bit. And then I moved down to Eugene, Oregon, and I finished at the U of O. And then, yeah, and then I came back to Portland, took like a year or so off. And by that time, my twin brother was living in Ann Arbor, Michigan. He had been living there for a little while. And we were missing each other, not living in the same city. And so one of the reasons we applied for graduate school was uh, we applied to, our plan was to apply to all the same places and whichever place, if, if for some reason, someplace accepted both of us, then we would go there so we could live in the same city again. And that's what we did. We applied to all the same places. And the only place that accepted both of us was uh, the Michener Center for Writers, the University of Texas in Austin. Wow. They accepted both of us for their amazing three-year program. Um, but Jeremy, there was a caveat. I mean, they they looked at our uh, our undergrad history. <laughs> they were like, creatively, <laughs> creatively, you're two of our favorite poets in, you know, in the in the application pool. Yeah. But basically like, the people who signed the checks for your fully funded three years are looking at your undergraduate paperwork and they're a little nervous. So right. Michael and I both had to write a letter to the school saying, basically we've, 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 we've grown up and we promised to go to class. <laughs> <laughs> um. That's amazing. Also, obviously, for uh, for listeners who are who are uh, maybe un, uh, you know don't don't know the full story, you have a twin brother who is also a poet, which is just so totally, fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah. How long? And I mean, you know, I feel like there's a there's the narrative always that twin brothers are very or just twins in general are very inseparable. So you mentioned he was in Ann Arbor. How long apart were you two? Oh, like we were apart for a couple of years. And wow. I mean, now we've been apart for, he's been on the East Coast for, I don't know, uh, eight years or more. Did you two both become interested in writing around the same time? Like that, I mean, it's just, it's a fascinating yeah. thing that I'm sure you've been asked a million times in your life, but um, I, it is, you know, it's it's incredibly interesting. We Yeah, we did. I mean, in our youth, I mean, when we were like, uh, by the time we were 12, 11 and 12, like we had started sk- getting into skateboarding and like watching, uh, you know, VHS videos of, uh, Pal Peralta's like search for animal chin, like falling in love with Tommy Guerrero and Tony Hawk and stuff. Um, and, and listening, well, and yeah, just like skating with friends and, there, there, it wasn't like where we grew up was like a literary place. Like no one, uh, no one had books in their homes. I mean, some parents, some single moms had like a copy of Dianetics. I remember, you know, but like it wasn't, you know, we didn't grow up in a neighborhood with books and shit. And, um, and guys, even like kind of like art, like could be artsy, like punk, skaters it's not like we shared a lot of our feelings verbally with each other i mean we shared them through skateboarding and through fights and you know that sort of thing so i really believe that uh that our 
well, I'll just speak. I was going to say our, my twin and I, but I'll just speak for myself. I think like the first kind of involvement in poetry, I really feel like I had, though I was unaware of it at the time, was the music we were listening to. So, you know, things like um, listening to bands like Minor Threat and Suicidal Tendencies and um, Bad Brains and Circle Jerks and Dead Milkmen and like all those like um, kind of scathe-ish like punk bands. And then a little later, but still in like the early 90s, like getting introduced, uh, like, like skating outside of our very white neighborhood meeting other people meeting other like skaters of color and like punks of color and like listening being introduced to bands like nwa or like ice t's first album uh and starting to listen to like public enemy i remember listening to public enemy and then listening to jello biafra and thinking this is the same thing almost you know i mean these are it's like politically minded and the same with like early, like that early rap music from the West Coast and some of the punk music I was listening to sounded different, but they, they were very much saying the same thing. It was like, fuck the police, fuck being used, you know, and um, and a kind of like bravado and stuff that was in it. It felt very similar to me. And, sure. and listening to those songs, like the lyrics, like I loved... Uh, being in a mosh pit and sweating it out, but, uh, and getting some jabs in, but it was like the lyrics that were really, uh, like really affecting me. So that was like the first, interesting. I think that was the first experience of poetry, really unbeknownst to me. This podcast is presented by DistroKid, an incredible service for musicians that helps you upload your songs to all music streaming platforms from iTunes to Spotify and Apple Music, then pays you revenue from your songs all in one place. They've got a really cool new feature called Splits that allows you to add collaborators so you can pay your co-writers and fellow musicians without needing an accountant. To get 30% off your first year's DistroKid subscription, just head to distrokid.com slash VIP slash hard times. Did you, uh, I, I mean, I got to ask for my own total curiosity. Did you ever play in a band? Did you ever try to do do a band, you or your brother? <laughs> no, I mean, I think we always wanted to, but we were so talentless. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, we didn't play any instruments. There were other like friends of ours who get invited to like who also didn't play instruments, but like they were better screamers than we were. Okay. Uh, so and no, it's such a heartbreaking loss. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was, find, like, I was hoping to find out about your, you know, the punk band that lasted for a summer or something like that. Yeah, that that's like still floating around on like an old page of like my MySpace or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so it never happened. That's too bad. What uh it never happened, yeah. Did, and did you uh did you have friends that were in bands though that you would go see regularly, like um or were you going to shows that were just touring bands coming through? We were just uh well A, we were mainly just listening to records and tapes. I mean, we didn't have like even at the time when shows could be super inexpensive, like we were out in Lentz and so we didn't have the I mean, A, we didn't really have money to buy tickets, B, like you'd have to get all the way downtown 
Um, so like early days, uh, like between 12 years old and like 16 or 17, 18 years old, uh, there were like very few shows that we would be able to catch. So we would go to like house parties and there would be sure. like a neighborhood, you know, thrash band that was put together the week before that would play. And that was fucking cool, you know? Yeah. Um, but it was like later in my twenties that uh, early twenties that started going to concerts though by then, like some of like what I was into at the time was like very different from what I was listening to when I was a kid, you know, skating. Yeah. Um, but it was in high school that we had, my brother and I had a teacher, a mentor who became a father figure to us for the rest of our lives. Uh, uh, you know, he, he passed away this father figure, Ernie Cachado a year ago, but he's still like the father figure for us. Uh, I mean, he was the one that really like encouraged us to like write our thoughts down and, and, you know, um, explore poetry. Uh, So we started doing that. I mean, I started writing like, you know, bad lyrics for songs for friends. And then I started reading like uh, Bukowski poetry, like poems by Bukowski and just thinking, Oh, this is great. You know, and like writing bad versions of Bukowski poems. And then yeah. later I read these poems um, by other like male poets, like Phil Levine and others. And I realized, oh, I could be a guy and a poet, but not a complete asshole who hates women like Bukowski, you know, like I could do right. this, but not be a misogynist prick, you know. That, and it's, I mean, it's amazing it just that took you off caught that there. Yeah, it's amazing you caught that early on. I feel like Bukowski for a lot of people, I mean, well, especially a lot of probably young men, uh, there's that thing where maybe your your first thought of what poetry is when you're if you know, if you're not thinking about it as song lyrics is like, Mm. oh, it's like, you know, uh, perfumey, like uptight, like really intelligent, like. Shakespearean yeah. kind of a thing yeah. or like you know whatever so it's like it feels like it's something that's that would probably not be an interest but then you read someone like Bukowski and you're like oh my god I can cuss it can be dirty it can be filthy yeah. it can be depraved. this guy sounds this guy sounds like my old man you know yeah right yeah so <laughs> like so I understand get, this <laughs> yeah 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 so it's like you know it, it definitely it it shows you that poetry can obviously be something so different but um yeah, but then you decide uh, maybe there's someone a little better you could be uh, influenced by. No, I mean, Bukowski certainly serves yeah. quite quite a purpose for a lot of people. And, you know, he, he certainly I is think, I mean, story, I pr- but... Bukowski served me a great purpose in totally, just telling yeah. me I could write poems. Telling me, totally. like, look, you come from, like, I was raised without a dad. Like, we were all raised with this, like, super strong single mother. But I knew dads, like, what I was reading in these Bukowski poems. And that was one of the things like the fathers who were around when I was growing up were pretty terrifying. I mean, they were scary in a different way than the single moms were scary. Um, And, and reading those poems, like I was like, Oh, I, I get it. You know? And it, it was like a, um, and a little crack in the open door. And and then like uh, the next person that really influenced me was this poet Anne Sexton for similar reasons. I mean, Anne Sexton's poetry has more like metaphors and similes and, you know, more like 
poetics, you know, tools in her box, but uh, that she uses. But she was still talking about like real stuff, you know, real shit. And like you bring up what you said just a moment ago reminds me that like, I think just in general, poetry is so mistaught in middle school and high school. It's like you're sitting in a high school classroom and you're trying and you're trying to like read like some Rossetti poems or like e- Blake or even like Dickinson and Whitman. I, th- I think it, I think poetry would be in our culture in a different way if it was taught, like if, if in high school you, you brought in poems that were like written by people who are alive today, people who, you know, and like touch on the whole cloth of poetry. So like tons of different genders and, and poets of color and all this stuff, all these different experiences. I think if you offer some of those poems to high school students, and then those students who got really interested in could work backwards, you know, like yeah. read something that was published last week and then work backwards to Blake or whoever. Absolutely. You know, uh, one of the for me, one of the first things that it opened my eyes to it, which I just think just piggybacking off what you're saying was when I was really young, I saw the basketball diaries and I mm. loved it. It's, it's such a great movie. And then that introduced me to who Jim Carroll was. Yeah. And then his poetry was like so exciting to me because they even yeah. recite some of the poems in the film. And so you get like a young Leo, this dark story. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that so for me, like Jim Carroll was my intro to like something different because it was like, yeah. you know, it was introduced to me in, in, a, in a relatable film, you know? Totally. That's such. Yeah, that's. Yeah, that's so rad. And Jim, I, I love Jim Carroll was important to me too when I was younger. Like Jim Carroll, and I also I think this touches back on your question if I was ever in a band, like Jim yeah. Carroll and also Patti Smith, like two I think you know genius writers, but also like two of these kind of artists who um, who define themselves as just artists. Like neither of them was like I'm a writer, so that's all that I'm going to do. You know? Yeah. And uh, they were both in bands, the Jim Carroll band and, you know, Patti Smith. I mean, uh, yeah, those are two, two favorites. Both of those uh, people are amazing. Yeah. People who died is a straight up jam. Anytime. People (laughs) who died is so great. And your experience of that song changes as you get older or as people in your life have died. Like I, I can, I can kind of still feel how I, felt when I first like listened to that song really loud and I was really young, it was like, yeah, you know, kind of like, yeah, people who died, but I didn't, yeah. you know, I knew like maybe one person who died and a handful of pets. Um, right. But now if I listen to that song, it's like, it's feel, it's a very different thing. Yeah. I feel like it could almost be an exercise to where you would, it, it's like you get to a point where you have so many people in your life that have passed on. It makes you almost wonder how you would then memorialize your own people with one line in a song like that, yes, which seems totally. really hard to do. Yeah. Right. <laughs> oh, right. so uh, you, you probably already started to, you at least skimmed around it with what we were just, with what my next question was going to be, which was, do you remember the first poem you wrote? I know it's probably Absol- could be tough, but no, you do. Absolutely. Oh yeah, I do. The first poem I ever wrote was actually before high school and I was in eighth grade and 
we had an English assignment. I was going to Our Lady of Sorrows, which was this Catholic school. There was not a blade of fucking grass, Jeremy, in the play yard. I mean, Our Lady of Sorrows was like a build, small building placed on like a, t- a tarmac in, you know, Southeast Portland, just all cement. Um, right. The nuns were rough. Um, but we were given this assignment. We could like write like a story or write a poem. And the story seemed like too many words for someone who wanted to skate until nighttime. So I wrote this poem and I remember the title. It was called The Pumping Street. And I think my mom still has a copy of it somewhere in the garage, but it was called The Pumping Street, which sounds super weird. But as the poem was about how walking out of my house and going across the street, the street started to like uh, move in waves and kind of like pump up and down. I still think pump is such a weird word that I use for that in eighth grade, but it was basically just about like anxiety about walking into the neighborhood, you know, knowing, I mean, one thing about being in a neighborhood where there is violence, like there was, you know, it was a time and a place also where like, like you could be at a friend's house and if they were getting beat for something, you were going to get some too. Like, I talked to parents these days. I mean, like you'd be in, you'd be fucking shocked if your kid came home and was like, yeah, you know, Johnny's dad or Johnny's mom spanked me. I mean, parents these days would like hop in the car and speed right over. But that was just like a normal thing. And I think the thing about places when you're growing up where there is violence um, in whatever form, even when that violence is not happening, it's present. There's a pressure there. It's like you still, the, opportun- the opportunity for violence is so available that it's yeah. almost always happening, you know. But as a kid, you compartmentalize. And so the poem was basically about, about that. Uh, and I remember the teacher uh, was really impressed by it and read it out loud to the class which oh, wow. I felt like this great like honor. But then at the end, <laughs> he was like, he was like, but of course it's not really a poem because it doesn't rhyme. No. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And in eighth grade, I was like, Oh fuck. I failed. You know, I didn't know that poem. I didn't know at that time that poems were supposed to, or not supposed to rhyme or, you know, right. Anything like that. I remember walking away from that being like, well, I guess I don't, write poems, you know, and it wasn't huh. until later in high school when Ernie Cachado, our mentor and teacher started like encouraging my brother and I and a uh, sophomore year falling in love with a senior. And she really loved poetry where I just thought, oh, okay, I'll write, I'll just write poems and send poems to her, you know, which is what I did. Right. Wow. Um, it's funny when you were talking about the the pumping street my first thought was i wonder if you got the name because it was like for like skating you know what i'm saying like like kicking off yeah, like that's where my like brain pumping. yeah that's yeah, that's where my brain yeah. went with that um it could have been subconscious god, god that's so interesting and it's and it also shows um how when you're young just one adult telling you something like this needs to rhyme becomes scripture because you don't know any better because totally. these people are supposed to yeah. be the ones that are supposed to 
to to guide you yesterday so it's like it's a it's such a travesty that like one person's just oh that needs to rhyme uh becomes like gospel to you you were like oh i guess everything i have to do is this wow wow yeah um this is definitely super jumping ahead but uh do you remember the first time that you were uh ever published in something like yeah yeah yeah, I mean, I have I had two experiences. One, the first time I was ever really published in anything, I was at Portland Community College at the Sylvania campus, and I had a group of the I had written these sonnets. I had I had gotten into this class that was this poetry class, and part of it was talking about form, different forms of poetry. And I was sitting in the back of the class, and I had me and everyone else in the back of the class had this attitude like you know, fuck form, you know, like, uh, you know, you can't tell me what to do. You can't lock me in to your, form. you know, you're different, you're, you're villanelles, your couplets. And, uh, but I had this amazing sort of like, um, dead poetry society teacher who was talking about sonnet and he saw our reaction to that. We had to do a sonnet and, uh, he walked over to this window and the window looked out on this, like, um, uh, kind of area where like kids at the college would be like hanging out and having lunch and smoking cigarettes and stuff. So all this stuff was happening. Right. And he's like, look at this window. This window is the sonnet, right? It's got four sides. You can't change those sides. That's locked in. But if you look through the window, all this life is happening. You have all this freedom within the window, you know, and that's what form is. It gives you a structure, but it doesn't structure what you talk about or how you talk. It just gives you this much. And I was like, for me at that moment, I was like, whoa, man, that's awesome. And so I wrote these sonnets and I got them published in the Portland Community College, like literary newspaper called The Bridge. And that was amazing to me. It was amazing just to like see my name in print was crazy and to see this you know this thing i had written i felt so it felt it felt a lot of things but i felt very moved by it i felt like i mean for someone who's constantly dealt with like you know if 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 you're worthwhile or not or that sort of thing it was sort of like yeah you are worth you are worthwhile you know and that was like that was the first thing that ever got printed and then um i did i had two poems um you know, years later, uh, the first time I ever got something published in like a literary review that was uh, a national literary review that you could buy at Book Soup in LA, or you could buy at the Strand in New York was um, I got two poems published in um, a magazine that no longer exists called Tin House Magazine. And that was, um, that felt really cool, you know, yeah i mean especially something that's like being distributed to like all of the most you know beloved bookstores across the country yeah Yeah, i mean there's however big or small i mean seeing your name being printed is like a validation no no matter how big or small that like someone is taking notice to this you know and that means so much and be a motivator can be can be all of those things um well and you know earlier we talked about theater a little bit yeah and theater preparing you or preparing, you know, I felt the theater prepared me to give readings. It also super prepared me for rejection 
too in in right because you send out you you send out all these poems all these literary reviews and stuff trying to get published i mean most of the time you're not going to get published most of the time uh you're going to get a little slip i mean it used to be you get a little slip of paper in an envelope in the mail that said you know thanks but no thanks basically and um I remember a couple of writer friends being like really torn up when they would get these rejections. And I didn't like to get those rejections either, but uh, they didn't feel that bad to me, partly because I had done theater. So I would, you in theater, you audition for a play and you're standing on stage, like in front of people in real time and you perform a monologue for them. And then the lights go up and you watch them kind of look at you, look at your face, look at your body whisper to each other and then they're like sorry it's not going to work this time <laughs> you know like so like getting like a little note in the mail this felt so, like so not, much easier not too bad compared to compared to a group of people being like no there's nothing about this in front of us we're interested in <laughs> yeah oh my god uh i mean that that's a good segue to actually uh i wanted to ask um how you know, for someone who's, you know, never, never been a part of, been a part of it in this way, um, getting a literary like agent, like how, mm. how hard of a process was that for you when that first came your way? Like, um, did that happen when you were still in school, maybe in like Texas or like, was that once you moved back to Portland? Like what, what, what was sort of the, the story there? That was much later in my life. I mean, first of all, most poets, if you're, if you're just writing poetry and and this also just a side note, I think this is part of the problem about how we teach like creative writing here. Uh, there's, you know, there's a ton of MFA programs, masters in fine arts programs. There's a ton of those for, you know, writing fiction or poetry or nonfiction that people do. I did one, but part of what those programs do is they, kind of encourage you to stay in your lane, right? Like you're interested in poetry, you write poetry, that's it. You know, you write novels, that's it. Uh, there's not a lot of encouragement just to be a writer, write poetry, write short stories, write, you know, all of this stuff. Um, so, I mean, poetry, the market, like an advance on a book of poems, you know, can be anywhere between like $1,000, $500, $1,000, Maybe you've made a name for yourself in the world of poetry. So maybe you get an advance of like, even like for just a book of poems, even like $5,000 or something. Meanwhile, so that's the market, right? Part of that is because like Hollywood doesn't buy, um, you know, books of poems and makes movies out of them. Right. Uh, you know, um, airport bookstores aren't like, you should read some poems on your flight to Florida, you know? Yeah. Um, where like a first person's first novel could get upwards of a hundred thousand dollar advance on it. Right. So mainly there's no, if you're just writing poetry, there's usually no real reason to have a literary agent. I ended up with an amazing literary agent, uh, Bill Clegg, um, only because when my second book was coming out, um, okay, well, let me backtrack. My first book won, a first book poetry prize, which is how a lot of first books of poems are published these days. It's sort of like Vegas. Um, it won a great prize, which I was totally stoked and honored for. 
from American Poetry Review, and it was distributed by another press called Copper Canyon Press. Short story, short or long story short, by the time my second book was coming out with Norton, my first book had been out for a while, for uh, f- you know four years, and I knew it was doing okay for poetry because ha- I had seen it in a bookstore and it had been reprinted like six times. Oh wow! But the but it had been like uh, a couple years since I got any residual paycheck for it, which again would only be a few hundred dollars a paycheck or something. Right. But um, I was talking to my new editor at Norton explaining that I had like contacted this one place and was like, Hey, why am I not getting checks? And they, they said, Oh, you got to talk to this other press. And I talked to them and it was like confusing. And my amazing editor, Jill Bailowski at Norton was, um, was like, we are not going to stand for that. I'm going to introduce you to my friend, Bill Clegg. He's an agent and you know, he, he hates writers getting taken advantage of. And he particularly hates poets getting taken advantage of because there's so little money that they're right. you know, earning. So I met Bill and yeah, he was not happy with the situation. He's like, I'll take you on. We'll fix it. And within three weeks, I got all the money that had been owed to me for the last three years. You know, that's incredible. Uh, I mean, it sounds yeah. like it, that's not far off from a, a, a lot of us, uh, young punks who who uh do records with with very totally. small labels that have no idea how to manage finances yeah. and, and you're finances like, and they start ghosting you and yeah yeah you're like i feel like you sold a couple thousand seven inches i don't understand <laughs> yeah. why like there had to have been some money made right Something. but then you yeah also i'm assuming you me we have what we have in common coming up in like sort of like punk-minded world is like it almost sometimes feels taboo to ask for money for art oh, oh totally it's such bullshit but yeah it is we're sort yeah, of conditioned just... to feel that way to be like but yeah. also you're like you have to realize you're like well someone's getting that and i kind of feel like i should get some of it right is that okay to ask is that no. hard to ask? and it is but it is it's like that uh it's it's like that two it's like that two drink mentality it's like oh yeah you can come play here you get like in the green room, we'll hook you up. You get free drinks yeah. all night, you know, or whatever. Yeah. And like, that's it. And meanwhile, yeah. the guy at the door is taking five, $10 from like 50 people. And that's yep. none of it's going to the band, you yep. know? And then you're like yeah. sitting at the, sitting at the t-shirt table afterwards, just trying to make enough gas money to get back to fucking Toledo. <laughs> you know, I wanted to show you some. I wanted to show you something really funny. Um, this yeah. is not going to be as fun for people who are only listening to this, obviously. Uh, but when I bought uh, this copy, I, I found it at secondhand at a store. Oh, of all American first, poem. Uh, yeah, uh-huh. of, the, for, of that first book. Um, it's signed, right? Like it was, but you seem to have drawn your hand on it. Yeah, man. Yeah, I used to do that with that book. Which just made I used me laugh. to draw my hand and put these symbols on it, and I used to draw a city. <laughs> yeah, there's a city. There's a, there's a whole <laughs> there's a whole thing, which is just really really funny. I I remember buying it, and I hadn't you know I I just saw it used, and I grabbed it, and I and I, uh, I picked it up, and then when I got in the van, I opened it. I was like, well, that's like the funniest over the top awesome. signature that's situation going on. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> um, so. Uh, 
I didn't know the order in which some of your stuff had um, come out, but actually, yeah, well, first right. about the All American Poem Book, um, you know, when I look at all the different books you've done, um, they all have a different, um, uh, you know, sort of way of way in which you're going about it. Where I feel like All American, uh, the All American book is like more seemingly like narrative, like storytelling, mm-hmm. um, like like when you're reading it, like you can truly like feel like you're painting sort of a visual of uh of what you're reading um and then with the next book um it was a, you know not as expansive like more more like very straightforward sort of thing like how yeah. do you feel um what what was that like a conscious decision was that just growth as a writer like what do you think that was to go from one style to to another well the um that's a great question the the style in all American poem, it is like ecstatic, exuberant, sort of all inclusive in a way like, fuck, we're just all alive, man. And like, that's yeah. great kind of thing. And that's how I felt, you know, at the time. Um, but then life happens, you know, brothers die and shit happens. And, and I remember like sitting down and writing poems after some big life experiences um, you know, a couple of years after All American Poem was out and trying to write about these experiences like I had written in All American Poem because it seems successful. People seem to like it. So like, that's what you should do, you know? And I had read other poets where their like voice was sort of the same in each book. And I also thought that's what you were supposed to do. Find your voice and then run with it. And that's it. But it wasn't working for me. Uh, And I had this, you know, to me, a big epiphany to other people, maybe a small one, which was like, if my, if, if during my life, things will constantly change for me as they will, and I'll have different experiences and through them, I'll become a different person. Then why would I ever keep writing the exact same way? Right. Like, how does that work? Like, uh, and so with Mayakovsky's Revolver uh, was like the sort of turning point away from like agreeing to always write poems, like all American poem. And it was also a book that uh, was way more focused on a particular subject. And right. then it just went from, it just went from there. Cause after Mayakovsky's Revolver, I wrote Wonderland yeah. and I liked the idea of a book of poems that's sort of centered on a kind of subject, even if a few poems uh, kind of waver from that subject. Uh, and in Wonderland, I started also doing different things I had never done before, like repeating lines or having, um, you know, different stanza breaks and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, I think for, that for makes, me, that, mean, that, yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Does that yeah. make sense? It, I mean, it totally does. I mean, yeah. you get to a point but, where you get to, you get to a point, you know, you talk about how with the first book, it's like, um, yeah, it's like exuberant. Like you're, you're, you want, yeah. you want everyone to be with you as you're on this journey with you for each one of these poems. Whereas something so deep and so personal and so heavy, um, as, as, uh, the, the follow-up book, um, it almost becomes like a, a less is almost like a less is more like very straight to the point sort of lines and i and i totally understand that with uh it's funny my first um jeff rickley our mutual friend yes he gave, jeff rickley. uh he uh i think 
from what I remember, he gave me um, the 24 hours book. Oh, we were cool. on tour together and he gave me a copy of that. And where is that in your releases? Is that between books? Is that, um, it's between, was that self, yeah. was that self-released? Kind of. Yeah. It was um, a really cool, small um, press and like a uh, chapbook press in Portland which I don't think exists anymore, uh, put it out. And then also like an art book press in Paris, France, put 24 hours out as well. And then that book was made in between Mayakovsky's Revolver and Wonderland. But in Wonderland, there are some of the hours are in Wonderland. Some of those 24 hours are in it. Yeah. Okay. And I was going to ask you just out of curiosity, I mean, um, I, 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 it made me really it it inspired me in a lot of ways that book like i was so happy that jeff gave me a copy of that and introduced me to your work and everything like that um but one of my first questions was did was that book written in 24 hours was like did you write all of those within 24 hours uh i mean that book was written over 48 hours of okay super unhealthy manic relationship blow up stuff but each hour was written on the hour you know, either one day or the other day. Yeah. 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 With very little I, sleep in between the two days. Um, what I loved and what, you know, you talk about how, um, you know, the, the, the different ways of, uh, you know, reading someone else's work or being told by someone like an elder, um, the different ways in which you can write I, for me, you know, like the fact that all of these books or, or all of the poems in that book, start with just like the same two words or the same one word. Like I did, mm -hmm. I slept, I whatever. Mm -hmm. And then you just expanded from there. Um, you know, like th in a way it, 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 it's very therapeutic to write that way because you don't know what's yeah. going to come out of your head next. When you start, when you go into something being like, okay, well, these are going to be the first two words and now I'm going to see what's going to happen after that. Um, yeah. is that what you kind of pulled from that writing experience of that book? Well, I had, I, I had written like the first hour. I mean, it, of course, like I'm not the first person to like do like a list poem sure. or sentence starts with the same first two words and then what comes after changes. Uh, yeah. Brainerd, famous poet from the 50s and 60s and 70s, uh, wrote a book called I Remember. And the whole book is like, I remember this. I remember that. I remember this, you know. Um, but what I felt like I really needed in that moment of like, anxiety and being fucked up was something incantatory. Like I needed to just excise my anxiety. And so the easiest way for me, it felt to do it at that moment was not in like narrative poem or storytelling or journaling even, but was like a kind of like incantatory, you know, drum beat through these poems that make up that collection 24 hours uh, that makes sense and also because i i didn't have a bandwidth to really i was so sad and forlorn and all these things i really only had the bandwidth to like write just single sentences and whatever came out came right out. sure sure um and uh so to talk a little bit about uh mykowski's revolver book um just because <clears throat> reading that, knowing the knowing the history, knowing that it's like definitely an exercise in in grief, 
and how I can relate to your experience writing that book um, a bit. Um, I wanted to ask, how soon did you start actually writing um, after you had lost your brother? Like, was it something that you had to take some time away from? Or was it something because this is what you do, um, maybe to... Uh, to exercise sort of grief? Like, was it pretty immediate? Like, how much time did you give yourself? It wasn't like a planned amount of time. I, I know I wrote some early things of, about Darren um, just because I was missing him Yeah, in part. And, um, but uh, it was probably, the poems in Mayakovsky's Revolver I mean, probably happened a good two and a half years after he after he died. Um, I mean, that's not like a prescription for writing on loss. Like you don't necessarily need that amount of time, but just for me, that's uh, just when it started, it started happening, yeah. you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Was there anything that you felt like you maybe learned about yourself through that process of, of writing that? Like, did you come to your own self realizations about maybe, your relationships or, or just like how you focused on it after, you know, some time had passed? Uh, I don't know if I, I don't know. I would like to say, yeah, Jeremy, but I don't know if I learned anything. Yeah. I mean, I still feel like partly what I've learned is my older brother, this person I looked up to my whole life is gone. Yeah. I, I, I often don't know if there's much, I know the impulse, like I, I understand the impulse to, to want to learn valuable lessons from trauma, but I don't know if I'm of that school a lot of the time, um, not to sound cynical, but I think like trauma happens, death happens. I mean, the thing about death is, you know, as people say, it's as, it's as natural as life. Now, it seems extraordinary to those of us, like, like if a mother dies, an older brother dies, a best friend dies, it seems extraordinary. It seems even more extraordinary if it's a long sickness, equally so a freak accident. It seems extraordinary to us, but it is not extraordinary, you know, because when your mother died, when my brother committed suicide, at that same moment on earth, a million mothers died in that moment. A million brothers committed suicide in that same moment, you know? So there is nothing extraordinary about it. And because there's nothing extraordinary about it, I'm not, there's no mystery to it. So I'm not sure if there's, if there's much to learn about it. There's a great um, book by Sally um, Tisdale, uh, called advice for um, advice for like it's something called like advice for uh, uh, future corpses and those who oh, love them or something. And it's an amazing yeah. book about death and about the normalcy of death, um, which, by the way, is something I've been, you know, uh, going, giving a couple of readings from husbandry, which is a book of poems, you know, that's um a small part of it is about a separation, but majority of it is about parenting these two kids. And something I've been thinking about lately is just how often like parents talk about like the life they've given their kids, like even to each other, like brought this life into the world, you know, and, 
And when there's a separation, friends will always, yeah, you know, this is horrible. It's painful, but you guys brought this life into the world. And what parents rarely talk about, because it's a bummer who wants to talk about it, but it's like, you've also brought a death into the world too. I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's hand and foot. Like you've created a child, you've created a life, but with that, you've also created a death and that, you know, that shouldn't be as horrible as it sounds. It should just be sort of normal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what you're saying reminds me a little bit, uh, our last record, uh, the guy who produced it, very, uh, very intense person wants to know mm. everything about each lyric and, and all of these sorts mm. of things. And he and I got into, um, a, 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 a disagreement because the lyric that I had fundamentally, um, dismantled what his entire process was about, which was, <laughs> um, I wrote a line that says, uh, suffering has no purpose. Mm. And for him, like, he thinks, you know, and, and rightfully so that like so much great art comes from suffering so much great. Uh, uh, you know, yeah, and, right. and, and right. he's not wrong. Of course it does. Of course it does. Yeah. What we're all doing comes from some form of suffering. But my argument that we stood in a, like, he stood with me in the vocal booth and we had it out about not in like yeah. a heated like argument, but like just a yeah. conversation where I was just like, yeah. I was like, there's levels of suffering that truly have no purpose kind of a thing. And like, for sure. And, and, um, it, it was an interesting exercise to even discuss that. And I feel like you and I are on the same page with, even with what you were just saying about this, yeah. where you're just like so many, everybody's experiencing tragedy in their own way on a minutely basis. What totally. it's almost like, what makes you so special? You know, exactly, exactly. And, and well, and to, you know, the point, maybe a little bit connecting to this conversation you had, with your this producer, um, I remember I was at a um, I gave a reading, and it was from I think it was from Wonderland. But someone in during the Q and A afterwards, uh, this young guy, so I forgive him, but he was like, <laughs> you know, you write all these personal poems up, you know, these things are really hard. Like, do you feel? Do you ever feel like he's like lucky is not the right word? But do you ever feel like grateful that not grateful, but like Anyway, you you get to write about all this stuff, you know. And um, I looked at him and I was like, I was like, if I could snap my fingers and every poem I've ever written disappear from the world forever. Yeah. And along with that, I never get to write another poem again. But in exchange, I get to sit down with my older brother for just an hour again and have coffee in a park, I would snap my fingers. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. like, who wouldn't? I mean, would you rather have your mother back or that album you made, right? Right. A thousand percent. One thousand yeah. percent. Yeah. Um, and so I was curious about how it was. Yeah. Well, I guess the first question is like, did, did you see that book affect people in ways that you weren't expecting? Like, was that, was that anything that you, that uh, was easy or hard? Yeah, I I mean, I expect very little. I mean, I I don't say this in a cheeky way. Like I don't yeah. expect a lot when I when a book comes out. Sure. Um, but uh I mean, Mayakovsky's Revolver, you know, uh again, like 
I, in my losses, I am not the losses and myself, neither are extraordinary. So many people who picked up this book were like poetry readers who picked up the book, but then gave it to friends whose like family members had committed suicide or friends who committed suicide. You know, you start to see um, that you are not special and also you are not alone. And, you know, people who don't fuck with poetry at all were given poems from Mayakovsky's revolver and reached out to me in different ways. And, um, and, you know, there's been some longstanding friendships that came out of that book coming out and um, conversations around suicide um, through those poems being had by some people. Totally. Um, and did you find it easier? And it's funny because easier is such a, a, easier not necessarily meaning the word easier but what i I mean again i'm I'm finding parallels with 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 your experience you know about writing about grief my experience but like did you find that book almost easier to write than some of your past books because there's just so much to get into yeah well and also it was my second book so like your first book of poems in my experience anyway was like you're sort of like your whole life is like writing up to that first book in a way (laughs) right totally Yeah, yeah so um uh, yeah, I mean, the Mycoxy's Revolver had more of a subject. And so I wasn't like walking around being like, what do I write about now? You know? Yeah. Look at that um, tree. So Doesn't that look beautiful? That Maybe tree. I can write about what that tree. Remind me of? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it was easier in that way. I mean, some of yeah. the, some of the poems were, uh, mentally, emotionally, like harder, harder to write, but, um, felt super, uh, worth, worthwhile. And also, absolutely, you know, in this very like, well, I don't know. I mean, one day I'll die, maybe soon. But for the time being, I also get to have my brother back. I mean, maybe I wonder if you feel this way at all about the album about your your yeah. your mom. Like, I every time I read from my Costco's revolver, if I read poems about Darren, I get to totally have him back. You know, I'm sharing a vision of him with people, but really, I'm getting him to myself when I'm doing that. Sure. Um, Sure. And so that seems special. Yeah. Like a thing that, especially during like, you know, press for that record and, and just over time, like a lot of people had always asked me over time, like thinking about what you were talking about when you were talking, when you were um, sharing about reading aloud from this book and like how Mm -hmm. it could affect you. A lot of the questions I was always asked was like, is it hard to perform those songs live night after night after night after night? Yeah. And, um, you know, a response I often give is like, out of self-preservation, you sort of be go on autopilot. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Like, it just becomes yeah. words that you're just saying. Yeah. But it will take a specific, maybe something. Maybe I thought of something before that that earlier that day that reminded me yeah. of her, or it yeah. could be on an anniversary of something, whether it's her birthday on totally. Mother's Day any of these sorts of things like like god forbid we're playing a show on any of those days it's just like yeah, this right. is this is going to be a tough one this is a lot yeah, yeah. this is a yeah. lot totally yeah exactly yeah, absolutely. or like the um before she passed um my mom's dream always was to see new york city so the year before you know, or like the year leading up to her passing when she was sick like i organized a trip for her. my brother had never been in new york uh, either yeah. so like for the yeah. three of us to go and experience it so like you know anytime we're in new york doesn't matter like she's right. on my mind kind of a thing. yeah so totally. 
playing in that city regardless she's always going to be there with me kind of thing so like those are the nights you've played that album there yeah tons of times yeah 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 yeah. and the last song is about is specifically about being in new york with her the whole thing so like (laughs) so yeah so like you get that sort of you get sort of a glimmer in your eye when you're on stage you're doing these things where you're like okay yeah and you sort of but so much of it is truthfully like for better or worse like self-preservation you know because you're trying to do your job at the same time you're like i gotta totally you know yeah you're trying to be in service to the people who are there as you were saying exactly like i think when we make like in the creative process i think we are in service to ourselves you know when you're starting to think about the beginnings of a song or when you're you know in the middle of december writing something writing a poem down like the creative process we are in service to ourselves as we as we should be you know, in service to the mystery of creating. But then when a product comes out and it's shared with an audience, regardless of the size, um, that should be in service to them, you know, and the performance of that product, whether it's reading poems or in a band uh, or visual art at a gallery, you know, should be in service to them. Um, at least to a, so, a, a question yeah. I that, that leads me wanting to ask you this. So like, I've always kind of firmly believed that when a song becomes public, that it kind of doesn't belong to the artist anymore. Like it mm-hmm. doesn't belong to me anymore. Now it's up to the yeah. represent. Now it's up to how this person reading it is going to take it in and how sure. they're going to come up with their own um, narration for it or their own version mm-hmm. for it. Do you, do you feel that way ever about your work? Like if when someone's reading it, like to make it kind of their own, Absolutely. Even with work that's really intimate, even with work about like the death of a brother or this most recent book, Husbandry, like work about my children. uh, It's, it's not, it's not really mine any, any, anymore. I've I've decided to, I've decided to and been privileged enough to be able to share it through the publication of a book that's going to show up in a bunch of bookstores. So, um, so no ownership, uh, I think I think also though ownership is with an artist can be a little dangerous, especially during the creative process. If you feel ownership, then I mean ownership can slip really quickly into like preciousness, you know, and that sort of thing. And that doesn't seem like a room with a lot of air for creativity or creative wonderment, you know. So. Um, I mean, I do know poets who get really upset when like in a review or something or at a Q&A, someone quote unquote misreads their poem. Of course. And I just think like, bruh, why do you care? Like, you know, the point, I mean, maybe this is coming from kind of a privileged place because I've been lucky in publishing. My last three books have come out with W.W. Norton in New York. Um, I know that. But also more and more as I get older and as I've experienced things in my life, like three years ago uh, or almost four years ago, uh, I had uh, a stroke, like a major stroke. And um, like for me at my age with my experiences, I know for sure the thing that is mine, the thing that is interesting to me 
is my experience when I'm trying to make something. The product or the thing that comes out of that is not as valuable to me as the experience of making it. And it's that experience that I want to protect and I want to also not completely understand. The product, the poem or the book of poems, um, that uh, is awesome. It's fucking rad. But um, I no longer have anything to do with it in a way. Right, right. Um, so the, the, the follow-up book with Wonderland, <laughs> I wanted to ask you, um, it's funny. We already touched on with all my notes. You already touched on, cause I, I wrote like bad brains, minor threat. Like I was as like, <laughs> yeah. a, as like a punk kid, I yeah. was like so excited to crack that book. I had pre-ordered it the whole thing. I cracked that book and I was like, Oh my God, now there's like reference, you know, even if it's just the title of a poem, you know, yeah. it's like, it's like, Oh, I'm seeing so much of myself and, and so much of this. Um, but because, you know, as we discussed, that book is so much about your, your growing up in this neighborhood, um, the roughness of it and, and all of that. Um, I wanted to ask if after writing um, the previous book, if you found yourself wanting to um, almost go back to the past, like if that was like mm -hmm. a motivator to to sort of like live in a different um, headspace while making that because maybe it made you think of family. Yeah, I I mean, that's I can't definitively say like, yeah, that's something that happened, but uh, you know, some mentors of mine always said when someone smarter than you says something smart about your work or craft, just agree with, just say yes. But uh, I, I won't do that. But I, I will say, like, it does, it does make it does make sense. And also, Wonderland was written during a time when I was living outside of the United States. I was living in Berlin with my family. Oh at the wow! Time. And wow. so, um, and so, I think you know, I was experiencing in Berlin like all these other experiences, like. Uh, and so there was a, also, I'm a super fucking nostalgic person. And so there was a part of me during that time that I was like looking back at my past, looking back at my neighborhood, the, um, the, the poems, I think there's like four or five poems in Wonderland. That's like named after, uh, punk bands, like minor thread yeah. or bad brains or circle jerks. Uh, those came out because those originally weren't in the manuscript. And then my brother read the manuscript and was like, this is great, but like, you don't mention like trees or grass. I mean, it's like we lived in a neighborhood with like birds. I mean, it was like, it wasn't just like skinheads and bad moms, you know? And I was like, you're so right. There was nature. Yeah. You're right. And so like, yeah. those are my attempt at like a uh, nature poems, the poems that are named after those punk bands. Oh, um, interesting. And for me, it's because like, they are nature poems. They're about nature. Uh, but also like when I was in nature, there was still that music. There was still that attitude. There was still that punk culture, you know, like right. I hung out in parks in my combat boots, you know? So yeah. I still wanted to, I wanted to illuminate that connection still, but have like, um, a, you know, a nature, a nature poem. Right. Did, um, yeah, I want to ask you now, obviously you have this brand new book called the husbandry, obviously congratulations on, on Thanks. its release. Um, when a book, when you know, uh, actually here's a, here's kind of a, a, a side fun, just fun question for me. When, 
how much time do you have to wait for when you have finally finished this book to where it comes out? So like I'm living in the world where like it can take a fucking year at this point for a book to even I mean, sorry, for a for like the vinyl to get pressed because of the amount of, you know, backups and things like that. Like, yeah. So when you turn in the book, like how long are you waiting these days for this thing to finally come out? And how exciting is it that this thing is you've worked on is finally coming? Like where where's that at these days? So I, so it very much depends on the press. I mean, there are some presses where, um, you know, you turn in a manuscript and it's, it's not, they're not being shitty presses. It's just, it's, they're like, you know, indie presses, they're understaffed, things like that, where you could turn in a book of poems and it gets published three or four years later, you know, um, that long. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm lucky with Norton. I've, I got a draft of I got a draft of husbandry where I wanted it, where I knew I could have a good conversation with my editor and make changes. And I sent that to my editor and it was it came out like a year later, year and a half later, which is really fast for a book of poems. It's usually okay. around 24 months. Yeah. Wow. Um, so it happened really fast. I mean, all of it happened fast. I mean, I wrote most of the book I wrote on Mondays during the first shutdowns of the pandemic uh, with um, these Zoom poetry meetings I was having with a couple mentors of mine, the poets, um, Dorian Locks and Joe Millar and Sharon Olds and my friend Mike McGriff. We were just getting together on Mondays, giving each other like words, like random words. And then we'd go off for 45 minutes and write a poem and then come back and share what we wrote, you know, just like I love having that. fun. Yeah. And that's where 95% of husbandry comes from is just from that exercise with those people. In yeah. Interesting. Um, I wanted, you know, a, a thing I took notice to, I don't know if this was on purpose or if this is something that whatever, this is, you know, maybe reading too in too much into something, but um, I love that you know, the whole book is written in couplets where it's just like, you know, the just two lines, two lines, two lines, two lines. Yeah. Um, was, do you think that was, or was that conscious or like an unconscious choice? Like, I don't know if I'm reading into it too much, but because so much of the book is about parenting, but then also like the separation of, of you and your partner. Um, like I just looked at it like, like a couple, you know what I'm saying? Like, like two yeah. lines representing potentially a marriage. Um, was yeah. that, was that conscious or unconscious or am I thinking too much about this? No, it was a totally conscious thing, but it was a conscious thing that happened in revision of the poems. The, the poems were, I mean, I, I also wanted to like Wonderland. My third book was the first book of poems where I really started fucking around with stanza breaks and like white space on the page and um, that sort of thing. And so I knew I wanted to continue to do that. A lot of the early drafts of the poems in Husbandry were coming out where there'd be like a couplet and then like three lines and then a single line and a couplet and kind of, or all couplets. Cause it just, I had never written in couplets before really consciously. And so I was just having fun with it. And then when I was looking at these, when I had gotten like maybe half the book written, which I wasn't like planning on writing this book, uh, but I was thinking about my two kids and then I was thinking about my kids, mom and I, and I was thinking about love and grief. And I just thought, and I like 
I'm a simple person. So like, it just made sense to me to like put them all in couplets. Cause I like, I liked how the couplets felt. I also like how they can speed up a poem. Like there's some poems in here that are, you know, five page poems, but it only takes a minute to read because the couplets kind of push you forward really fast. And I like the uh, metaphor of the couplet for all those things that you mentioned for sure. It, I, I, you know, I, as soon as I got it, I just was like blowing through it. Cause it's, it's so beautiful. Yeah. And I, and with, with your work and with a lot of uh, writers that I, that I enjoy, like I have to almost make myself not just blow through the whole book. Cause I'm like, yeah. I need to take these in a little more like on their own, <laughs> right. you know, like give myself a little space, but um, it's a beautiful book. And, and I appreciate just how honest you are in, in what you write and how, and how um, you really do, uh, get taken to where I, you know, you seem to be when you're writing these things, like what you're going through, the thoughts of how you're reflecting on your children and and what they could be thinking, and and um, it's just it's it's a remarkable book, and I'm I'm just so thankful oh, that you, you. Uh, you have a new one out that uh, you can share oh, with all of us you. during this time. Oh, oh, that means a lot. That means a lot to me. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, shit, I, let me hit you with the last question, which is when was the Let's first time that you? When was the first time you felt like you were doing the thing you've been working so hard towards? Okay. I think the, the, the first time that I really felt that was, I mean, definitely uh, like when, when, when all American poem came out, like it really felt like, okay, like I've, I've been working towards this, this book, you know uh, now it didn't really change my life at the time the book came out, I was still, I was working at Whole Foods, but, uh, but this friend of mine who worked in the fish department, this old Portland punk rocker, who was like six years older than me, we would go on smoke breaks together all the time. Uh, it was when he came up to me and he was like, fuck Dickman. Someone just told me you wrote a fucking book. You know? I was like, yeah, I was like, I'll, I'll bring a copy for you. He's like, fuck that. I'll go buy a fucking copy. That's so fucking cool. And so this like old punk guy, like he goes, buys. He was like, "Will you sign this shit for me?" And I was like, "Totally," you know. So he goes to Pal's Books. He gets the book. This guy fucking reads it, and he shows up the next day. I was like behind the cheese counter at Whole Foods, and he goes, "Dickman, I fucking love it." He starts laughing. He goes, "It's just you talking." Oh, I'm walking down the street. Oh, I'm having a cup of coffee. Oh, that girl's hot. Oh. Look, I feel sad. This is fucking great. They published that. I was like, yes, he, this guy fucking gets me. Like, that's the thing, you know, like I felt I really it. seen in that moment. And yeah. um, it was cool that he was just like, yeah. So like, that's the first moment I can think of where I, I feel like, you know, uh, it's a mix of like being understood by someone. And also yeah. that thing sometimes where you feel like, oh, until there's a book or an album, or something i'm not really that thing so it was kind of a, a mixed a wonderfully mixed moment yeah i appreciate you sharing that story i love that i love that sometimes <laughs> you know sometimes it's the acceptance of uh of 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 the most honest normal yeah. person the person who yeah. doesn't have any connection to that world who just sees it for Zero. what it is sees yep. it for what it is yeah. It's just you talking. And it's, it's just true. Talking, baby. I mean, that's my big secret. Every book. It's just fucking me talking. And I'm just yeah. gonna keep talking as long as I have a publisher who'll keep printing it. So we'll see how it goes. 
I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, man. This was a blast. I, I thanks for hanging out with me and talking with me today. This was this was wonderful. Jeremy, it was an, it was a fucking honor. The the people you, you I, I mean you your music that I've I've listened to and loved for for a long time now and like all these amazing fucking artists you've had on this show. I feel pretty I feel pretty honored to um be you know sitting even at the corner corner of the table. I'll even take oh. the kitty the the kid table. I'll be happy there. Uh, well, I'll just keep blowing smoke. You've been seriously a very big inspiration, whether it's between poetry or for writing our records since i've just discovered your work through jeff like it's been it's been very helpful it's been very 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 helpful so thanks for that that's great that's rad thanks man And that is our show. Thank you so much to Matthew for coming on and thank you for listening. Reminder, there's a bonus episode available right now where Matthew answered questions and were submitted by subscribers. Head on over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon to hear that and get a lot more. Um, also, if you haven't subscribed to the show on Spotify, Apple, wherever you're listening to this, leaving a positive rating and review, all of those things help oh so much and it means the world. Uh, follow us on Instagram at the first ever podcast or on Twitter at the first ever pod. Take care. Bye bye.